So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We'll we'll be in verses 23, and we're going to go all the way down to chapter 3, verse 6. So Mark chapter 2, verses 23, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 6. And this section of Mark, we've seen Jesus repeatedly testify to his divinity. He demonstrated it by showing his authority to forgive sins, and he also demonstrated by effectually calling sinners to repent and follow him. He self-identified as the bridegroom and the son of man. You see, what Mark is doing is that he is tracing the life of Jesus to defend his thesis that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And in this section, what we've also seen is that Jesus has been repeatedly opposed by religious leaders. And this opposition has come in the form of the question, why? And in our passage this morning, we will see the continuation and climax of this opposition. So Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. Please stand for the reading of God's word. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions." Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to him, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? to save life or to kill, but they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. You may be seated. And so our big idea this morning is this. That Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and always does what is good. Our big idea is this, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and always do what is good. And we have two points from our passage. The first point that we see is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And second, we see that Jesus does good on the Sabbath. So we see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and that Jesus does good on the Sabbath. So our first point, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Look at verse 23. It says, On the Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. You see, on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples, they they went through a grain field to pluck and eat uh, heads of grain because they were hungry. They were without food, and so they went and ate in this grain field. In verse 24, it says, the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so the Pharisees, they saw him. 
And it's, if we think about this section, it's almost as if the Pharisees was constantly spying on Jesus. You know, they were always seeing him, and when they saw him, they always questioned him. And we see the confrontation begins to arise. Again, this is the fourth time that Jesus has been questioned in this section. And he's been questioned with the phrase, why? And this opposition, it begins to escalate. Because in recent sections, we've seen them question in their hearts. And then we've seen them question the disciples. But now we see that they're directly questioning him. And what they say is that they're saying that Jesus is breaking. They're saying that his disciples are breaking the Sabbath. You see, they hold Jesus responsible for the actions of his disciples. They say, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, they charged him with Sabbath breaking, and much of this passage deals with the Sabbath. So much so that you would see that phrase, the Sabbath, repeated seven times in these few verses. And so as we speak about this, we read so much about the Sabbath, it'll be important for us to know a little bit more about it. And so the Sabbath, it, is the, it was the seventh day. It is a very important day for the people of Israel. It was a sign of the covenant of Israel. It's a sacred day. In the Ten Commandments that we read, the fourth commandment was for Israel to honor the Sabbath. They were to rest and not work on this sacred day. And the consequences for work is death. And so they are questioning Jesus, accusing him of Sabbath breaking, but the reality is that Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. You see, he and his disciples, they were doing what was permitted by the law. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, makes known that, that the people of Israel, they could eat grain, but they couldn't place it in a container or pick the grain with a sickle. You see, Jesus, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath, but rather he was breaking their traditions. Now, these traditions, they were added so that they could help keep them from breaking the law, which isn't a bad thing. You know, there wasn't necessarily wrong with traditions in and of itself. But the problem wasn't their traditions, but it was the fact that they exalted their traditions to be equivalent to the authority of the law. And so according to their traditions, plucking grain was considered work. So therefore, in their minds, Jesus and his disciples, they were working. And so they broke the Sabbath in their minds, but not according to the scriptures. How does Jesus respond? Look at verses 25 and 26. He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and also gave some to his companions. And so Jesus, he, began, he responds to their accusation with an appeal to Scripture. And he refers to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. And in this section, David has already been anointed to be Israel's future king, and yet he was on the run for his life because Saul was jealous of him and seeking to put him to death. And so David, he fled to Nod. And he and his men were hungry and in need, 
And so when he got to Nod, David went into the house of God and he spoke with the high priest and asked him for food. The thing is, the high priest didn't have any food, but he had the bread of presence. And so the high priest, he asked David and his men if they have been sexually pure, if they haven't slept with a woman as of lately, and, and they have. They've been sexually pure, and so the priests believe, and David agreed that it would be proper and good to give David the bread of presence, David and his men. Now, it wasn't lawful for David and his men to eat the bread of the presence because in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9, makes known that only the priests could eat the bread of presence. Yet, God did not condemn David. You see, God didn't oppose David at all for this. And it's not like David was completely sinless and God never opposed David. In fact, in 2 Samuel, God opposed David twice for committing adultery with Bathsheba, but then also for taking a military census. But yet in this section, David eating the bread of presence, God did not oppose or condemn David. And the thing is, the Pharisees, they have read this, and so they knew this. And what Jesus is doing is that he is exposing the strictness of the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. You see, God didn't condemn David for his actions. And what that does is that demonstrated that the Pharisees' interpretation was not in step with the tone of Scripture. You see, their strict interpretations surpassed the intent of the law. And so Jesus is exposing their wrongful interpretation. And he makes this comparison as David, who is anointed the Messianic king, not the Messianic king, David is anointed to be king. Jesus, who is the son of David, he is the Messianic king. He is the son of David who is to come. And so there's an association of David and his men doing something that's unlawful, and yet God didn't condemn, and Jesus and his disciples. But the thing is, Jesus and his disciples didn't do what was unlawful. Look at verse 27. It says, then he told them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You see, Jesus, he declared the original intent of the Sabbath. You see, God instituted the Sabbath for the Sabbath to serve man. It was for the good of man's mind, body, and soul. You see, God instituted it for the benefit of man, for man to enjoy, for man to be blessed by the Sabbath. But Jesus also says that, that man, God didn't make man for the Sabbath. You see, man wasn't created for the Sabbath in the sense that man was not created to be subservient to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not intended to serve as a taskmaster over man. You see, to make the Sabbath burdensome is to have it to, to function contrary to God's intent. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. This is exactly what they have done with their tradition. You see, they have made the Sabbath burdensome for people to the point to where Jesus and his disciples were prohibited, to where they couldn't necessarily eat food from the fields of grain on the Sabbath day, even though they were hungry. You see, God permitted this, but the Pharisees prohibited it, and they sought to keep people from doing it. You see, Jesus, he is correcting them. You see, like honoring the Sabbath, none of God's commands are burdensome. 
Rather, they are for our good. That's exactly what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 13, that God gives his commands for the good of his people. John will say it this way in 1 John chapter 5, that, that Christ's commands are not burdensome. And so every command that God has given is for the good of his people. And this is because God is a good God. Not one command is overbearing. Now, though not one command is overbearing in our flesh, we can perceive and assume that God's commands are overbearing. So friends, a question for us is to consider is like, how do you view God's commands? Do you view them as given for our good, from a good God? Or do you view them as burdensome? And if you view them as burdensome, what does that say about your view of God, who is the giver of the law? You see, this would be good for members to discuss amongst one another after service. Now, as we read this, it could also be easy for us to despise the Pharisees for their legalism. But the reality is that we too are capable of doing the very same thing. So how can that look like? How can it look today? You see, take a, it can look like this. Take a verse like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul exhorts the women to dress themselves in modest clothing. And yet you can take this verse and you take this exhortation and then command that the sisters must only wear skirts that touches one's ankles. You see, friends, that wouldn't be scripture. That's not scripture. That's tradition. Or another example, as we think about clothing, it can be a brother or sister who serves the Lord's Supper in sweatpants or with a hat on their head. Or with a short sleeve shirt on and they have a, man, a slew of tattoos. They had a whole sleeve of tattoos on their arm. And you're upset and bothered by it. And you, it just disturbs you and rubs you the wrong way to the point to where you approach them about that. Friends, that's not consistent with the teachings of Scripture. That's tradition. And so, a good question for us to wonder, to think through, and to ponder. You know, what ways are we tempted to come up with our own traditions and hold other people accountable to it? To try to bind consciences and make our traditions equivalent to the authority of Scripture. Also good for us to discuss and pray for one another that we won't do that at NBC that we teach what the Scriptures teach, and that we obey and live out what the Scriptures obey, that we don't bind consciences at all, that we love one another. When in verse 17, I mean 27, Jesus, uh, yeah, he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he goes on to verse 28 when he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so Jesus, he concludes with this statement as he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And when he does this, he speaks of his authority, like he did in chapter 2, verse 10, where he said, talks about the Son of Man. And, and the Son of Man, it is found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and is a reference to this messianic figure who has authority and power. He has divine authority and power. And what Jesus is doing is he is disclosing something about himself, 
because he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's doing is he's declaring his divinity, that he is God, because only God rules over the Sabbath. God instituted the Sabbath and commanded Israel to honor it, to keep it, and to obey it. He has authority over it. And yet, Jesus is placing himself in the place of God. He declares that he has authority over the Sabbath. And what this does is it explicitly speaks to the authority of Jesus, that he is God. And he revealed it in just these few words. Now, many times people of different religions would say that Jesus never claimed to be God. And the reality is that is not true at all. Very oftenly, Jesus declared that he is God. He did it in his words and deeds. All of it is testifying to who he is. And because he has authority over the Sabbath, he alone can determine what is and what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And in fact, throughout the Gospels, Jesus exercised his sovereignty and lordship over the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath and on numerous occasions. And he does this, and he can do this because of who he is. And I think it's good for us to pause here and even talk about the Sabbath, because I'm mentioning it so much, and the passage mentioned it so much. Some people may be wondering, okay, we're Christians. As Christians, how do we now relate to the Sabbath? If you're thinking that, really good question. Got a few answers for us. One, the Sabbath was a sign of the Old Covenant. Now that Christ has instituted the New Covenant, he has brought the Old to an end. So we're not under the Sabbath. We're not under the Old Covenant. So the command for us to honor the Sabbath, it is not in the New Covenant. And as we read uh, earlier in the Ten Commandments, Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that is not is honor the Sabbath. The other nine are binding because they are part of the law of Christ. Thirdly, the New Testament writers didn't exhort or expect Christians to keep the Sabbath. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 to 8, Paul conveyed that honoring the Sabbath is a matter of conscience, not command. Fourthly, Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and, he point, and it points to our heavenly Sabbath rest. And so we experience this rest through faith in Jesus, and we will enjoy it in full when he returns in the heavenly city. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't rest or refresh ourselves, but what it does mean is that it's not a command and it's not limited to a particular day. Now, some may wonder, well, what about Sundays? Is Sundays the new Sabbath? To which I would say, no. See, there's a difference between the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. First and foremost, the Lord's Day is found on the first day of the week when Jesus resurrected from the grave, and the Sabbath is on the seventh day of the week. Secondly, Jesus, he resurrected on the first day and inaugurating, inaugurating the new creation and Sundays are referred to as the Lord's Day. And we can see this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And so we, we, as a people, we gather on the first day of the week. We gather on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord, to encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. But it is the Lord's Day. It's not a Sabbath. Now, 
Lastly, I just encourage you in this, because freedom and conscience, if you want to keep the Sabbath, you can according to your own conscience. It's not in our statement of faith. It's not required here for membership. And this shouldn't be something that we divide over. And so if you want to keep it, praise God. I want to encourage you in that, but just know that it's a matter of conscience, not a command. And so in this section, we've seen that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But now let's turn and see that Jesus does good on the Sabbath. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. It says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. And so Jesus, he goes into the synagogue, and he saw a man with a stiffened, deformed, possibly paralyzed hand. And we're not sure how the man got there. We're not sure if the Pharisees had set this up. But what we do know is that the man is there and Jesus is there. And look what else it says. It says, in order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, they are watching in much suspense. And their motive has already been made known. They're watching that they may charge him with Sabbath breaking. You see, their opposition against Jesus has escalated to the point of wanting to put him to death. And they knew that there was a good chance that Jesus may heal this man on the Sabbath. He has already done it before in chapter 1, as we saw earlier in chapter 1. And so they watched in suspense in order to charge him. You see, this suspenseful watching is similar to what happened in Daniel chapter 6, how the administrators, they, they wanted Daniel dead, and so they went to King Darius, and they were just like, man, hey, King Darius, have an edict that no one can pray to any other gods but you for 30 days. And they all did, did this with the intent to trap Daniel so that they could have him put to death. Well, King Darius did it, and yet Daniel continued to pray. And what happened was these administrators, they were spying on him, watching him so that they may trap Daniel. And what we have here is the Pharisees doing the very same thing with Jesus. They're spying on him, conspiring against him so that they may trap him. And the reason is that they would accuse him because according to their traditions, healing on the Sabbath was considered work. It was considered breaking the law. You see, multiple times in the Gospels, the Pharisees, they, they, uh, they were mad at Jesus because he had healed on the Sabbath. And again, what they're seeing is, what we see is they are making the Sabbath burdensome according to their traditions. And so this was a setup. You see, if Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, then they will believe that they have the evidence that they needed to try to put him to death. You see, we see the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. Look what happened. Verses 3 and 4. It says this, He told the man with the shriveled hand, Stand before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And so Jesus, he brought the man to stand before them. And he turned his attention to the Pharisees, and he asked them a question. And the question is, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? 
You see, Jesus asked if it was just to do good on the Sabbath day. Would one be in sin if they did good on the Sabbath? Now, in the context, the good that Jesus is referring to would be him healing this man on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees, they had no issues, with do, uh, they had no issues of doing good in order to save a life on the Sabbath. But here, they would say, this ain't saving a life because this man's life is not in danger. And so they would consider this to be breaking the Sabbath. And what we can see is that the drama here, the drama is this, that that Jesus' response to the man with the bad hand would dictate the Pharisees' response to Jesus. If he does good by healing the man, it would result of them accusing him of Sabbath-breaking and seeking to put him to death. You see, the question that Jesus asked, it exposed them, and they should have been convicted. You see, it is unlawful to do, I mean, it it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, but it is unlawful to do evil on the Sabbath and to kill. It's never lawful to do evil. But this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Friends, If you were in this situation, what would you do? See, the reality is we probably won't be in situations like this, but we may be in situations where there will be consequences for doing good. You know, situations like, man, let's say your boss asks you to do something that's unethical, like lie on an inventory sheet. Do you sin against God and do it? Or do you do what is good You be honest on the inventory sheet, knowing that the consequences may be that you lose your job. Or especially in light of what's happening in our country, let's say friends or family members are having conversations and they're making racist comments about an ethnic group and you are there. What do you do? Do you participate and sin against God? Do you sit there silently out of fear of man? and sin against God? Or do you speak up? Do you oppose them for their racist statements? Doing what is good, knowing that there just may be, it just may result in them beginning to make racist statements about you. Knowing that it may lead to an end of a relationship. Friends, what do you do? You see, we will be faced with these type of situations. But the question is, how will we respond? You see, may we concern ourselves with honoring the Lord and doing what is right. May fear of consequences not dictate whether or not we do what is right. But may we trust the Lord and do good. First Peter chapter 4 verse 19 says this, So then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good while doing what is good. NBC, may we be devoted to doing what is good at all times. May we not fear consequences, but may we do what Peter has said and trust ourselves to the faithful creator while continuously and devoting ourselves to always do what is good. In our passage, we see the dilemma. Jesus asked the question, And look how the Pharisees responded. It says, but they were silent. 
They had no answer. But their minds were already made up. You see, they, they, they want to accuse him. They want to kill. So they're not about to answer this question. They want to see what he is going to do. Well, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 5. It says this. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And so Jesus, he looked at them with anger. You see, he had righteous indignation at the hardness of their hearts. And Mark explicitly makes it known that Jesus had anger. This is righteous anger, an expression of the anger of God. You see, Jesus was angry at their hard hearts, angry at the fact that they would seek to kill him for doing good, for being merciful, for doing what is good on the Sabbath. But not only was Jesus angry, look at the verse more. It says, he was also grieved at the hardness of their hearts. You see, Jesus, he had a godly grief over their hard hearts. He grieved that they rejected him. Not because he desperately wanted them to be his friends, but because of the implications of such rejection. You see, by rejecting him, they were rejecting salvation. And the reason they rejected him is because they held firmly to their traditions. You see, they held so tightly to their traditions that it resulted in them missing out on Jesus and redemption. You see, this is the dead end of self-righteousness and legalism. You see, what happens if you hold to your self-righteousness, if you hold to legalism, then you will miss out on Jesus and salvation. You'll reject the Savior. And this rejection, it grieved the Lord Jesus. It angered him. Friends, the things that angered and grieved Jesus angers and grieves us. You see, Jesus is angry and grieved at the hardness of their hearts. What about us? Are we indifferent when someone rejects and staunchly opposes the Lord Christ? Or do we grieve and weep over their hard hearts? Do we grieve to the point where it leads us to pray all the more for them? That the Lord would do a regenerating work in their heart and transform their lives. Or are we just indifferent, like, oh, well, that ain't me. I didn't do that. So be it. So for us to check our hearts on. Because as the famous song that Hillsong said, we just pray that the Lord breaks our hearts for the things that break his. So may we never be indifferent towards hard-heartedness. But may we be grieved by it. And grieved to the point that we intercede for them. Though Jesus is fully aware of their plot, he told the man, he still does what is good. He told the man to stretch out his hand, and he stretched it out, and the man's hand was restored. You see, Jesus still healed the man. He restored the man's hand, and he does it by speaking. Not touch, not touching, but words. You see, Jesus has the authority to heal, and what we see throughout the Gospels is that he heals in different ways. Sometimes he would touch, touch a person like he did the leper. Other times he will speak and the person will be healed, which demonstrates his authority. 
Now, the other thing is that Jesus, he did what was lawful on the Sabbath. You see, he didn't break the law. In fact, Jesus, he always does what is lawful. You see, he never committed any sin. He is the sinless one who perfectly obeyed the Father. You know, somewhere in the Gospel of John, he would say that he always does what pleases the Father. And the Father is never pleased with sin. And so Jesus, he always does what is lawful. And though he healed the man, look at verse 6. How do people respond? How do Pharisees in particular? It says, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. And so the Pharisees, they see it and they catch ghosts. They roll out, they have their evidence, and they begin to scheme with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus, how they might put him to death. Now the Herodians here, they're a group of men who are adherents of Herod. Now, we read this, and we may think that the Pharisees and Herodians are friends, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Like, the Pharisees, they ain't feeling Herod. They don't like Herod. And so they definitely ain't feeling Herod, uh, these Herodians. And yet, they are willing to plot with them that they may kill Jesus. You see, it's like, it's like the famous saying, of, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, that's what's happening here. See, the Herodians, they're plotting to put Jesus to death out of fear of this political uprise. And yet, the Pharisees are plotting to put Jesus to death because they believe that Jesus is in sin. And Jesus is fully aware. But not only, do I, not only that, so one quick thing before I move on. So I wanted to make it clear. They're seeking to put Jesus to death not just because of this one thing. Not just because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. But in fact, this is like an accumulation of what Christ has done. The fact that, you know, in the beginning of chapter 2, he declared that this man's sins were forgiven, and so they believe that Jesus is a blasphemer. And then also he is dining with sinners, and he's not fasting, and now he's breaking the Sabbath, and so this is an accumulation. And what we see here is an outright rejection of Jesus. They believe he's a sinner, they believe he's cursed, and they believe he needs to be put to death. And the ironic thing about all of this is that scheming to kill Jesus, plotting to do evil on the Sabbath was unlawful. So it's in fact, they are the ones who are actually breaking the Sabbath. And yet their hearts are so hard. Don't even see it. This is spiritual blindness, clear as day. And yet, Jesus knows that they want to kill him. He's fully aware. In fact, in the previous section, he says that the groom will be taken away. Well, here we see the plans beginning to formulate how Jesus will be put to death. You see, the cross is in view here. For at the cross is where Jesus will be put to death. It is where he will be killed. You see, they will have him arrested and demand for his crucifixion. And he was crucified on the cross, where on the cross he died for sin. You see, though the sinless one, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he was a Sabbath breaker. God treated Jesus as if he plotted to do evil. God treated Jesus as if he committed every sin that every one of the people who will trust in Jesus has committed. You see, Jesus bore our sin in his body on that tree. 
but he didn't remain dead. In fact, he resurrected from the grave, and he offers forgiveness and eternal life for all who would trust in him. You see, Christ died for sinners, and he saved sinners who trust in him. And if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad you are here. Friends, this is the Lord Jesus. He is the righteous one. He is the one who is without sin, and he saves lawbreakers like you and me. You see, like us, you've broken God's law, and you deserve to be accursed, deserving God's holy and righteous wrath. And yet the Lord Jesus died in the place of sinners, and he offers forgiveness. He's a compassionate Savior. So I would implore you to trust in him. Don't reject him like the Pharisees, but trust him. And friends, in our passage, we see that the line has been drawn, that one can either trust Jesus or reject him. And to reject him leads to eternal condemnation, bearing the wrath of God for all of eternity. But to trust him is to be forgiven of sins, to receive salvation, and it leads to the enjoying and the enjoyment of eternal Sabbath rest when he returns. Friends, how will you respond to the Lord Jesus? Life and death hinges on this response. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. God, that you are a gracious God and that your commands are good. And yet, Lord, we have rebelled. We have sought your commands as overbearing and wicked. And you sent your son to atone for our sins. We praise you that he always does what is lawful, that he is without sin, which qualifies him to be the Savior. The fact that he resurrected from the grave is proof they never sinned. Oh, Lord, we praise you for such a sweet salvation. God, we pray that we would not adhere and hold fast to tradition, but that we would cling to Christ, that we would do what is good for your glory, that we would long for his imminent return so that we may enjoy the complete Sabbath rest in your beloved presence. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.